You're listening to HIV Frontlines, the Body Pros podcast series focusing on resource-poor areas throughout the world. For more information on this podcast, including a full transcript, please visit us on the web. This is Bonnie Goldman, Editorial Director at the Body Pro. Welcome to HIV Frontlines. I'm here today with Dr. Catherine Anastas, the Executive Co-Director of a community-based organization known as Women's Equity and Access to Care and Treatment. It is based in Rwanda and provides HIV primary care to women who were infected with HIV during the 1994 genocide. Dr. Anastas is also an Associate Professor of Internal Medicine at Albert Einstein College of Medicine in the Bronx and has provided clinical care and leadership in the South Bronx for more than 20 years. Whether in the South Bronx or in Rwanda, Dr. Anastas is dedicated to working at the crossroads of HIV, race, and gender. Her research centers on the role of sex and race in response to treatment and the impact of HIV or HIV treatment on medical conditions which are prevalent in urban communities of color. Welcome, Dr. Anastas. Dr. Anastas, I understand you've just returned from one of your frequent trips to Rwanda. Where did you start out in medicine, and how did you end up here? Well, I entered medicine as a vehicle for social change. Having graduated from high school in 1968, gone to Oberlin College, and then uh, I actually had many years off from school. When I went back to, uh, to college, I after that chose to go to medical school and for many years after training I thought maybe I had chosen poorly that medicine was not a good vehicle for social change but in fact it is it's been it's been a deeply satisfying way to make a contribution so I am trained as a primary care internist and I finished my training in 1983 within the first couple of years of the AIDS epidemic And in fact, I subsequently learned that one of my patients whom I had cared for as a second year resident in 1981 to 82 was the first case of a woman accepted by CDC to be heterosexually infected. And up until that point, the CDC had said, well, the women just must not be telling us the truth. Uh, If their partners are doing drugs, they're probably doing drugs too. And I took care of both her and her partner. Was this in the Bronx at the time? Actually, it was at Montefiore. Yep, it was at Montefiore in the Bronx. And then I was a primary care doc in the South Bronx, and if you were a primary care doc in the South Bronx in the late 80s, you quickly learned how to take care of HIV, although in those days there wasn't much we could do. What sort of population can you describe the population in the South Bronx? South Bronx was... uh, over well, almost completely African American and Latino or Latina, um, probably about 75% men, 25% women in those days, and almost all of the men had been infected through injection drug use. Although there were some some gay men in that group, and the women had been infected either through injection drug use, but equally likely, or maybe even more likely, through heterosexual transmission. So it was during these early years when there was no treatment to uh, provide. How did you deal with just having very few tools at your disposal? Well, there's there's two levels of, of answer. One is there were things we could do. We could prolong life. We could prevent. It made a huge difference to provide prophylaxis for pneumocystis pneumonia. So when we started providing Bactrim, that made a big difference. We used sequential monotherapy for the antivirals 
which probably made a difference. It was always we always wondered, um, and then we helped people die. Like, really, that's that's what we did, and we, as as for the patients and their families, we grieved a lot because people were always dying. And in fact, that is a similarity with Rwanda, that the Bronx in 19, even up to 1996, right, uh, which is when we finally got effective therapy, um, basically what we did was prolong life and help people die, help people get their responsibilities taken care of. And for women especially, that meant their children, so that when they died, they knew their children would be cared for. Now, in Rwanda, it feels remarkably similar to walk into a hospital ward and find two people to a bed very sick with HIV, although that was two years ago. That's actually less common in Rwanda now. And the difference is, in Rwanda, even in 2004, if you walked into a hospital ward and many people were dying of HIV, there was hope which we didn't have until 1996, because you know if you treat, you know if you provide treatment, that people will live, and that within really within two weeks, if you can just get the drug in for two weeks, you can turn around that process that is inexorably headed towards death. So tell me, how did you first get involved with Rwanda? What year was this? We got involved in 2004, and we became involved through a very specific event which is there was a, some of the women's organizations in Rwanda, the grassroots organizations, uh, in this case an organization of women who, had, who were genocide survivors uh, and who, many of whom were HIV-infected through genocidal rape. Uh, in late 2003, one of these groups, Vega, sent what I think was probably a widely broadcast email to many people probably everybody they could think of who took care, who, who was connected to HIV and women. And what they were asking for was help in accessing antiretroviral therapy. And the reason they were asking then was that they had just learned that the perpetrators of their rapes who were being tried in the international tribunal in Tanzania, that the perpetrators were being treated with state-of-the-art triple antiviral therapy because they were, I believe, because they were under international law. And the women were outraged. So that's actually, we, that's what we were responding to. That, that email did not come directly to me. It went to my co-director, Anne Christine Dedeski, who was a journalist. And uh, we put together a little group, got a little bit of funding from Stephen Lewis and did a, really a feasibility trip. We did a trip in April of 2004 to see if, in fact, we had a skill to offer. And that's how we started working in Rwanda. So what was your first impression when you went to Rwanda? I guess that it was a situation that could be completely turned around. So it, was, it was a very emotionally difficult time for Rwandans, and therefore for us, but more for Rwandans, because when we, it was the 10-year anniversary of the genocide. Uh, and so this was a very emotional time, and we met with many groups of women who were survivors, uh, who were called the widows of the genocide. And they said, between tears, we're dying from HIV infection, which they were. You could see it. 
and a lot of people come, and nobody comes back, which was heartbreaking. You mean they come from the developed world? Yeah, it comes from the developed world, take a look around and say, oh, I'm going to do something, and then don't. Mm-hmm. Right. So we did. So it was. Although let me, let me add one other thing. The, the women's organizations had their own little clinics where they had, like, maybe one nurse or two nurses working with them. And they basically were giving palliative care. They were helping people die, exactly what we did before 1996. And we had gone there with with the notion of, you know, we didn't actually know Rwanda before we got there. We didn't know what the country was like, what the culture was like. Was it urban? Was it rural? And in fact, it's mostly rural, but it's also very densely populated. So they're putting in centralized service works, meaning putting in a clinic works as opposed to having mobile services that go out into the community. And so we thought we would do a model, sort of like a village worker model. And the women said, the the, the leaders of these organizations, all of whom were victims themselves, said, no, 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 no. We know the model we think will work. Why can't you train our nurses to give good care for HIV and provide us with a doctor to supervise them? And they were absolutely right. It was a great model. So that's the model that we implemented. Uh-huh. We trained nurses. We actually trained nurses within three weeks. We got nurses into training through the Rwandan government. I mean, none of this could have worked without the Rwandan government already being deeply committed to providing care to all Rwandans. And how did that come about? I mean, was that something the women had been working on for many years? No, actually, the Rwandan government... Is is a very mission a non corrupt mission driven government. It is it is the people who stopped the genocide. It was the Rwandan Patriotic Front. And when the war was over, when the genocide was over in July of nineteen ninety four, they inherited a completely devastated country. And they had plans for what they would do if they won the war, but they had not planned on the genocide occurring. So they had a deeply traumatized people and a shattered infrastructure in the country. So I, I have some numbers here. It was a 100-day genocide in 1994. Yep. 800,000 people were, were killed. 250,000 Rwandan women were raped. 125,000 women are estimated to have become HIV positive. That I, Those are approximately right. Some people say a million people died in the genocide. Some people say 800,000. It's actually not entirely known. Um, and those other estimates are the numbers that are usually used. And um, 17% or 24,000 women are still surviving with HIV. The rest, I guess, died. And I, don't, I would be interested in knowing where that number comes from because I think probably more were surviving. Mm-hmm. That you would expect, actually, that less than 50% would have died. People really did get treatment in around 2004, 2005. But the median time to AIDS in almost every place is 10 to 11 years. And then people don't necessarily die when they get AIDS. So you would think that at 10 years, more than 50% of people would still be living. Um, although nobody tracked it. It's really it's really hard to know. So are, are, are you dealing in, in Rwanda just with people who, who had gotten HIV in 1994, or are there new infections? No. Well, actually, you can't really tell when anybody got it. So they could have gotten it before 1994. They could, have, they could have become infected after 1994. And we do not discriminate 
and in fact, it's illegal in Rwanda to choose one group of people over another group of people. If you provide a service, you have to make it available to everybody, and we do. Um, so we take care of women who are genocide survivors, women who are not genocide survivors but HIV infected through some other mechanism, children and men. It happens that 80% of the adults we care for are women, and of those, about 50% of them are genocide survivors. And how did it um, it work in terms of getting the treatment there and getting services and getting all kinds of tools on the ground? How, how complicated was that since you began? The, um, I mean, I, I have to stress again that the the Rwandan government had had made a commitment that many people didn't know about because it was just beginning to be rolled out. But they had made a commitment that they would treat everybody who needed it, and the Global Fund and PEPFAR were funding Rwanda's antiretrovirals, and to a certain extent, the infrastructure. But what was really missing was the infrastructure to deliver care. And that was actually the skill that we had to share. In spite of my being an AIDS a specialist, really, in HIV and women, and a researcher in HIV and women, the most valuable skill I had was that I had been a, an executive in a poor community and developed really large large numbers of clinics to deliver ambulatory services. And, it, and really, the, the shortages were the same. The situation was very similar. Not enough space. Rwanda is a very overcrowded country, so is the South Bronx. Um, not enough doctors, maybe enough money, um, and sort of little existing infrastructure. So our, our role there really is helping to provide infrastructure that can deliver the service, that can bring people into care, deliver a patient-friendly, cost-effective, high-quality service, uh, and link to what the government already does in ways that are not duplicative, and that ultimately these services belong to the Rwandans, not to us. And so how often have you been going? Usually I go about once a quarter for a month, so every third month for a month. Sometimes it varies. Um, this past year, because of issues in my family, I went less frequently. And next year, I'll probably go more frequently. Uh, also, when my children can come, I have three daughters. When my when my daughters can come, I stay longer. And wh- what's your typical day like? This last time I was there was actually really great. It was the first time that I did not have to do what I call line management you know, the basics of on-the-ground service delivery, that we have trained a lot of people to do that. We have 85 employees. We have a management structure that really can supervise those employees. So that my role this time was, you know, to see how things were going, to meet with the staff, but to look towards other activities that the Rwandans feel would be beneficial. So really this past time I spent time working on an initiative to do cervical cancer screening in Rwanda, which the Rwandan Ministry of Health is very committed to, and which, uh, do, you, do you know about cervical cancer and cervical cancer screening in so-called less developed countries? Tell us. Okay. So we don't have much cervical cancer in the U.S. We still have more than we should, but the reason we don't have it is we prevent it, and we prevent it by doing pap smears. You do a pap smear, you find the early lesions of cervical cancer, which is caused by a virus, human papillomavirus, uh, and then we treat it. So we have very little, and when you treat it, you prevent the progression to cervical cancer. Right. 
whereas in most lower-resource countries, there is no prevention of cervical cancer. And like here, before we screen, in those settings, cervical cancer is the leading cause of cancer deaths in women. It actually is a very a prevalent, highly prevalent disease if it's not prevented. And very few lower-income countries prevent it. But Rwanda is very interested in finding a way to screen and prevent cervical cancer. So we've been working with them on that. And it's, it's not just me, my, especially my, I have two colleagues who do this. Marge Cohen, whom you may know, is, um, who's the, does a lot of AIDS work with women in Chicago. Mm-hmm. And then there's Dr. Diljeet Singh, who's a GYN oncologist, who also helps a lot with this work. So I did that. And the other big thing I did this last time was I met with the medical school in an effort to create a, at their request, actually, at the request of the National University of Rwanda, to develop some liaisons from my medical school, which is Albert Einstein College of Medicine, to the National University of Rwanda to strengthen the, um, their curriculum and their teaching. So uh, what HIV medications are available in Rwanda to patients? Well, the first line is always, you know, I actually should say a little bit about this because it really is a very good system, probably better than what we do. It's better for one reason, because they guarantee to treat everybody, um, although they're still rolling it out. But they can't, They have. They keep a lot of, science, you know, scientific control almost, evidence-based control over how HIV is treated. So there is a protocol about how you start people on treatment and what medications you use. The first-line medications are always a nevirapine-based regimen, unless there's a contraindication to nevirapine, with either AZT and 3TC or D4T and 3TC. Right? And they come in single-pill fixed-drug combinations. So they have to take the pill twice a day, one pill in the morning, one pill at night, and you get essentially state-of-the-art treatment. If they need to use an efavirenz-based regimen, which here is Sestiva, they will do that, but then the regimen's a little more complicated. And just to, to round out the picture so you know how it really works, there are a couple other things that have to occur before someone is started on antiviral therapy. The first is the patient must identify a buddy or a family member, a person of their choosing who knows that they have HIV, and who will attend a required three-day patient education course with the patient. So every patient gets three days of education, you know, which I could never achieve that here for my patients. So there's a real effort to educate the patient about what's important, and then also to educate the doctor. The other thing that must happen is that if the, there's a, a selection committee, which is a group of people, before the select, in the selection committee, every patient who's going to be started on antiviral therapy is presented to the group. So there's many such groups. Right in the beginning, there was one such group, but now there's many such groups at each of the sites that's providing antiviral therapy. And tell me a little bit about the education for three days that they're given. Are they taught about how HIV works? Are they taught about HIV drug resistance? Well, what, what particularly? I actually don't know. Oh, okay. <laughs> I don't know. I don't do that part. The big piece is, you know, why do you need it? How do you know you need it? How well will it work? And why does it matter that you take it exactly as prescribed? Are they paid to, to come to the sessions, you know? No. They're okay. definitely not paid. In my opinion, nor should they be. Okay. Although I'm we provide to... we provide their transportation to get there. Many places do not. So, um, and second-line treatment, what sort of second-line? The second-line treatment is a chalatra-based regimen, 
you know, lopinavir, ritonavir regimen. And other medications, how do you get other medications available in this? Every medication you use in Rwanda has to come through the government system, everything. Uh, and there's a, a centralized procurement mechanism called Camerwa, and you know, if, which which is a French acronym. It's an acronym for French for the drug procurement system for the country. So the R in it is Rwanda, right? Camerwa. The um, and if you think about it, that's actually a huge issue that in many ways we don't have around how do you get medication to people who need it. Which is how do you make sure you have enough drugging, drug coming in? How do you know it, how do you make sure it gets to the clinics it needs to be in and from the clinic to the patient without getting diverted into a black market? Uh, and that you don't have what's called stockouts, meaning the entire country runs out of a drug. In which case everybody's on the drug would miss their doses. And this is all run by the government. And you feel effectively yeah, extremely effectively. So what's going on with the patients that do, cannot access the treatment yet? I know there's a rollout that started in 04, but how close are we to reaching um, treatment of 100% of the patients who need it? I think they're probably halfway there. They actually are. They keep numbers. They know how many people they're treating. I think it's close to 30,000. Um, it's a small country with a infection rate that's somewhere between 3 and 5%. And then, you know, of the people who are actually infected, probably only a third, a quarter to a third actually need treatment now. The rest will progress probably to needing treatment. So they're actually doing a fantastic job. And you have available to you all the monitoring tests, viral loads, CD4 count? No viral loads. No, no viral loads. It's all done on the basis of CD4 counts. But there are CD4s, which is, you know, not necessarily true every place else. Uh And resistance tests, not, I imagine. No, they actually have the equipment there, but um, but they, you know, it's you know, it's eight hundred bucks to run a resistance test. <laughs> They're not even if you don't do viral loads, you don't usually do resistance testing. They probably do them in certain circumstances, but we have not run into that yet. And you you feel that you can function without these monitoring tests? Well, you do what you have to do, right? I mean, I think it's more important to reach more people than to use viral loads. I think actually it's not even proven you really need the viral load. Uh, maybe not even here, but certainly not in these settings. That that the sort of risk benefit or the cost benefit analysis would not lead you to, would not necessarily lead you to do viral loads versus treat more people. And in terms of mother to child transmission, what what is being used in Rwanda? Heart triple antiviral therapy. It's not single dose nevirapine. There was a brief period in Rwanda when single-dose nevirapine was used, but pretty much it's all shifted over to what we would consider state-of-the-art treatment. Without C-sections, though, here you would consider state-of-the-art treatment might contain a C-section also, which we would not do in Rwanda, and which I'm not so sure we should do here either. So where do you get the support, the financial support for the Women's Equity and Access to Care and Treatment group? Oh, we struggle... We really, really struggle. <laughs> the, um, well, we have some, you know, really dependable funders. Keep a Child Alive, whose executive director is Lee Blake, who's really a pretty amazing person. They fund one whole clinic for us. Uh, Ronald McDonald Foundation has funded what, what a family program. We do have a lot of enhanced services for 
for the children who are HIV infected. Basically, it's built around family acceptance, the kids' mental health, and the ability to adhere to the treatment. So Ronald McDonald Foundation is funding us for a second year for that. Stephen Lewis Foundation has funded us quite a bit. But we really are, we really struggle. You know, we are always, always, always looking for enough money to sustain the programs. Are you the fundraiser? I guess so. I mean, we're all fundraisers. Well, who's all? It means that basically there's three three of us in WEACT, which is the acronym for Women's Equity and Access to Care and Treatment. Myself, Dr. Marge Cohen, and Ann Christine Dedeski. Uh, and we do the fundraising as well as the work, wow. which is very difficult. Is it really really is burning us out. <laughs> so we need a we need a better solution. And and the the funding helps pay for your trips there and, and No, pretty much pay for our trips other ways. We spend all the money we get that way we so far we spend in Rwanda. Of all the countries in the in the whole world did you ever imagine you would end up in Rwanda? I mean that this would become a mission for you? I no. But I didn't really imagine I would end up in I didn't think about it. You know, if I, I guess I would have thought I'd end up in a Spanish-speaking country because I have to speak Spanish to work here. And, in the Bronx? Yeah. Uh-huh. And Rwanda's English-speaking, isn't it? French. And French. Oh, so do you, how's your French? It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> Although Rwanda becomes... My French gets better and better, and Rwanda becomes more and more English-speaking, especially in medicine. And I, I don't know if you're aware that the role of the French in the Rwanda genocide is considered pretty um, reprehensible and with a lot of very ill will from the Rwandans who recently cut off diplomatic relations with France. So they actually were sort of very deliberately changing the colonial language to English. Wow, that's pretty dramatic. So are you doing any clinical trials there? No, but I do an observational study there, similar to WISE, the Women's Interagency HIV study. That's the one you're involved with here in the United yeah, States. which is an observational study, meaning, and we, we did actually, we're very successful. We enrolled a 1,000 women in six months, less than six months. I'm not sure that's been done anywhere in the world. Certainly not in the U.S., though. It's very, it would be very hard to enroll that many people. And Let me say why we were able to do that. In fact, this comes back to something I should have said much earlier. All of our work occurs through these, through grassroots organizations, meaning we, the original groups who approached us, as well as now 20 other groups. So we have 24 grassroots partners who are very community based, which provides this incredible reach into the community. Uh, some of them are HIV organizations, some are not. I mean, like the Veterans, the Veterans Association is where the HIV provider for. And whenever anyone asks us to provide care, we do. Um, and a, utilizing that infrastructure is part of what makes us successful as a high-volume provider, that the, the people are already being accessed by the organizations, or the people are accessing the organization one way. It goes both ways. Uh, So when we started the research program, which we did after asking the Rwandan women, the, the infected women, whether they thought it should be studied, we did it through these organizations. And that's part of why we're successful. Let me just tell you what the women said when we asked if it should be studied. And this was on our very first trip there. 
in April of 2004. I asked the question, I asked the question just like that, do you think that there should be research on this? Do you think that this should be studied? And the women visibly startled and said, well, of course you have to, of course you have to study it. How are you going to know what happens to us if you don't study it? Hmm. Which is true, right? But which actually took some doing to get the rest of the, yeah, the research infrastructure there. Um, so we, we enrolled a thousand women in six months. We disenrolled about 60 because they had not told us the truth about whether they were on antiviral therapy. They had to be naive to antiviral therapy to enter the study. And so we're now just finishing the fourth visit for 936 women with very high retention. And the retention is high, again, I think, because of the grassroots organizations with whom we work. So how can other healthcare professionals get involved? It's very um, individual. So, for example, we have two clinics that are really HIV-dedicated that we run or that we run with a Rwandan partner. But we are also the provider the HIV provider in a public health center, which is how Rwanda wants all of the care to go. They want it to go through the public health centers. And, and for example, there's the maternal mortality rate in Rwanda is very high. So we see as part of our mission there improving the maternal mortality rate. Um, so, so midwives, for example, working with us would be helpful. Although we do have a, a midwife a senior midwife already working with us, and all of this would go through her. Um, but mostly, it's it's mostly what we need is money, really. I mean, and as we don't provide the care, the Rwandans provide the care. The what we do is help provide an infrastructure. That's with money. Well, money and the knowledge of how to create a delivery system. Um, all the medicines go through PEPFAR, so you don't need medicine donations or anything like that? No. In fact, you can't do that. You can't take medicine. The, the Rwandans are very strict about about that. So if anyone knows of any fundraisers, then you, you want to hear from them. They could raise money for the organization. Yeah. Now that you have this knowledge about working in Rwanda, do you ever think about going to another country and helping them as well? Have you gone to another country? We are asked by many other countries to help. Through this, I mean, once the, the communities hear about this mechanism of using their existing organizations, they can see how well it would work. And so we're asked frequently by other countries. The, most, the, most, the one we've been most involved with actually is in the Congo. But there's two things that, that are kind of critical. One is we must have financial stability before we go to any other countries. <laughs> Um, and the second is that the country itself makes a big difference. Our success in Rwanda is predicated to a great extent upon Rwanda itself and the government's commitment and organization around delivering HIV care. And absent that, it's a different task. It doesn't mean it can't happen, but it really is a much different task, and we would have to do a, a different kind of feasibility assessment before we would actually start delivering care. And that pertains to the Congo. There probably are other countries, Uganda, Kenya, where it could work almost as well as it works in Rwanda. Well, your story is certainly inspiring. It's amazing what two or three women can do. <laughs> <laughs> Just as, as long as, you know, my daughter said that. My daughter came. My middle daughter came in early 2004 when we were really just starting. It was like me, my daughter, and one intern, and there was obstacle after obstacle. And she said, well, one thing she learned 
was, uh, she actually, one thing she said right away, she said, you know, when you come here, she was in high school at the time, when you come here, you realize all those things we worry about at home, they don't really matter. <laughs> and, and she didn't mean material things, although, of course, that was included. What she meant was things like, what is your grade? What are your grades? What are your AP scores? What are your SAT scores? <laughs> we beat the kids up about this stuff. Um, and and that's what you want your kids to see if they go somewhere else, that that's not what life's about. It's not what's important. What's important is making a real difference to people who need it. Um, but the other thing she said was she learned um, how even one person can make a difference if they just keep going. Just keep doing it. Assess the obstacles. Overcome the obstacles. Just keep going. So, so you're right. So since 2004, it's 30,000 people have gotten on treatment, on HIV treatment? In Rwanda? Yeah. Yes, which means 100,000 are probably in care. Now, you probably don't want to – I would look those numbers up myself before I would give them to you as the actual numbers. But, um, yeah. So that's an amazing rollout. Yeah, it's incredible. They have done an incredible job. And these are just two or three clinics, is that? No, Rwanda does it in many clinics. Oh, okay, they do it in many clinics. For example, our clinics, we have 5,000 people in okay. care and maybe 1,400 on antiretrovirals, which until recently were actually provided in a government clinic. We didn't provide the antivirals. The government wanted us to refer the patients to them, so we did. Now we provide the antivirals in our own clinics. Um, but the Rwandans rolled it out through their public health delivery system. Well, thank you so much. <laughs> this has okay. been really inspiring, and I hope we can inspire other people to donate money. Is there a website people can go to? Yes, actually, the website's important. It's www.we-actx.org. So www.weact.org. And people can donate money there? Yes. Or, well, with some difficulty, I have to say. Actually, you know where else they can donate is through Crossroads, the uh-huh. Crossroads Fund in um, Chicago. The opinions expressed by hosts or interviewees in this podcast do not constitute professional advice, should not be considered substitutes for professional services, and do not necessarily represent the opinions of Body Health Resources Corporation or its sponsors. Please see the full disclaimer online at thebodypro.com. If you have comments or questions, please contact us. This has been HIV Frontlines from The Body Pro. Be sure to check in frequently at thebodypro.com for the latest news and information on HIV, including in-depth interviews with researchers and healthcare professionals. 